Welcome to the Small Business Buzz. I'm your host, attorney and entrepreneur, Kimberly Hanlon. Today, I'm letting you know about an update to the law on classifying independent contractors versus employees. And we have Digby Willard, marketing consultant and small business owner, here to talk with us about his experience as a startup, both in the physical world and online, and how that led him to helping others with online marketing. Thanks for joining us. We're glad you're here. Okay, let's get to it. Small businesses often like to use independent contractors for a lot of different reasons. Um, Independent contractors sometimes can provide more flexibility with staffing if you just have a specific task or expertise that you need as opposed to having somebody on staff all the time. Independent contractors are not subject to the compendium of various state and federal rights that are available to employees and therefore small businesses are at a lesser risk of lawsuits when they have independent contractors. But the reason why most small businesses do like to go with independent contractors where they can is often because of the cost savings. Independent contractors um, are responsible for their own taxes. And so Medicare, Social Security, and unemployment taxes and such are not the responsibility of the small business owner when they're using independent contractors. And that savings can be 20 or 30 percent. So it can be significant. On the other side, the IRS and the state taxing authorities and other government agencies have an interest in having business owners take responsibility and making sure that workers are protected by the rights that are in place. So there's all sorts of various agencies who are interested in making sure that workers are properly classified as employees versus independent contractors. One of those agencies is the National Labor Relations Board, and their decisions apply to many more businesses than you might think. And it might even apply to your business as small as you might think you are. The NLRB board recently refined its test for determining independent contractor status. Previously, they had been using specific 10 factors to determine whether somebody really classified as an independent contractor. And of course, whether a worker is or isn't an independent contractor is heavily fact-specific and really um, is determined on a case-by-case basis. But you can look at the factors and more or less see where you might stand as far as having somebody who's working for you, whether they are an independent contractor or if they should be classified as an employee. The NLRB recently refined their test and added an 11th factor. And that factor is whether the evidence tends to show that the individual is, in fact, rendering services as an independent business. So what does that mean? The board looked at whether the person was really taking advantage of the entrepreneurial opportunity for gain or loss. And that entrepreneurial opportunity needs to be real and not just theoretical. So the look at whether 
the business is imposing any sort of rules or structural factors like an organizational structure that could limit that entrepreneurial opportunity. And they're also looking at whether the business is having the independent contractor perform whatever it is that they're doing really in the same way as an independent business would. Like instead of hiring an individual as an independent contractor, if you went out and had a vendor who was Acme Incorporated. Now, the NLRB board factors isn't the only set of factors out there. The IRS has its own set. Um, Each state has more or less its own common law set. Other agencies have their own factors that they look at. So you might be wondering, why is this important to me? Well, first of all, your business might be one of the businesses that this directly applies to. And even if it's not, it's only going to be a matter of time before other agencies start looking at their own factors through this lens. It's definitely important as a small business to stay on the right side of the independent contractor line. All the government agencies crack down hard on misclassification. If you'd like to see a complete list of all the NLRB factors, including this new one, you can find a link to my blog post about this on the show notes, or you can go to my website at khanlonlaw.com. That's K-H-A-N-L-O-N-L-A-W.com. While you're there, you can also sign up for my bi-weekly business owner newsletter. And the newsletter that's going out related to this has included a guide to independent contractors that you can download and it will help you to stay on the right side of the independent contractor line. And if you happen to be listening to this sometime later and that newsletter's gone out, just send me an email through the Small Business Buzz and I'll send it to you. If you're not sure if the NLRB board decisions apply to your business, go to my show notes and I have a link there for the NLRB jurisdictional requirements. And you can look and see if your business is one of those that needs to be concerned about this particular test. Okay, next up, I have my interview with Digby Willard right after this short break. Life of an entrepreneur is a never-ending struggle to sharpen that competitive edge that will place your business ahead of the competition. Fortunately, the shape of the average workplace has changed. Finding that fine balance struck between cost efficiency and excellence is now easier than ever. We need help when we need help, but we don't need to be burdened with full-time staff. That's where Astute Business Concierge can help you. Astute Business Concierge. More than just smart, astute. Visit us on the web at astutebusinessconcierge.com to see how we could help you. So the inaugural podcast. Thank you for joining me, Digby. Today I'm here with Digby Willard. He is a small business owner and also a marketing expert. 
And um, the thing that I say about Digby is that he applies the scientific method to business and the study of marketing. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here on the first podcast, being the, uh, the brave pioneer. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be the pioneer, although I... You know, they do say in marketing that pioneers are the ones who come back with arrows in their chests. So I'm hoping that's not what's going to happen here. And I'm not really worried about it. But there is a saying in marketing about that. Oh, okay. Well, we are going to be the uh, outlier that that does not happen to. (laughs) Right. Let's be the outlier. All right. Yay. So tell us about Science Teacher. Okay. ScienceTeacher.com was a, is barely still existing, but it is a business I started with my ex-wife in 1998 when I was teaching high school physics and looking for a side business. And the uh, probably the first thing I learned is that you name your business something you don't have to spell because otherwise you wind up spelling it all the time. It's actually a t-shirt business and so it was meant to be a cute joke, science T-E-E chur, science t-shirts, science teacher. And I've been spelling it for 16 years for everybody that asked ever since. But um, <laughs> And of course we'll ask you to spell it also and we'll of course put a link to it on our on our show notes okay. so people can go and check it out. Oh, geez. Well, it's kind of decrepit right now, but if you insist. Um, but it was I was looking at the time for a side business, a way to supplement the income because I was, I was the sole earner for a family. I had a wife and a newborn child, and um, so we were both kind of keeping our eyes out. And I was at the American Association of Physics Teachers national meeting, and yes, there is such a thing, and I was wearing a T-shirt that I had gotten at a seminar, and it was just—it was called the physics exam shirt, and it had a bunch of equations upside down, so you could read it while you wore it while taking the test. And it was supposed to be a cute thing, and and uh, and I was wearing this T-shirt, and and somebody came up to me and asked, "Where do you get that T-shirt?" And I explained, "Well, actually, you can't really get it anywhere because I got it at the seminar, and the guy only sells them when he does a seminar." And, Somebody else came up to me and asked where you get that T-shirt, and I explained you can't really get it anywhere. You just have to, you know, know the guy. And then somebody else came up to me, and somewhere between the fifth and tenth person, I realized I was looking at a market in search of a product. I went back home and talked to a few T-shirt uh, T-shirt printers to find out just how much things would cost and what turnaround times and stuff like that. And then the idea just sat there for a few years, and. Um, and the idea was actually to sell it at math and science teacher conventions as opposed to selling it online. This was 1990. I think the, the idea really came to me in 95. And internet business was a pretty far out concept still at the time. So I was just thinking of occasionally going to teacher conferences and maybe adding a couple thousand a year to the income, maybe. And then things kind of got bad for me one year at school and I started looking for a way out after my daughter was born. Things were pretty rough for a while and and that's when I decided, well, let's see if this t-shirt thing can at least supplement the income so I'm not under as much pressure. And we just got some shirts, 
went to the fall meeting of the, the fall combined meeting of the Minnesota Council of Teachers of Mathematics and the Minnesota Science Teachers Association, which was in the metro area. So it was a short drive. It was actually in St. Paul, and we lived in St. Paul that year, and rented a table for 125 bucks and put put up our T-shirts that we had gotten from somebody else on the internet and just kind of watched what happened. And we didn't break even, but we saw that there was a serious interest. And um, from there it grew and went through a few more conventions and eventually I quit my job more for reasons of wanting to stay home with my daughter than anything than wanting to grow the business. But, uh, but then I was under the gun to grow the business and eventually figured out, you know, at some point we figured out, well, let's try this internet thing. And I figured out internet traffic and a few other things. And from there it grew and became a full-time income for us. Did it seem like there were different aspects on the the startup phase um, offline as opposed to the startup phase online? Um, I don't know if I'd uh, how I'd answer that. Let's see. There are. I think the biggest thing about online versus offline. Well, a couple of the biggest things online. There's very little overhead. Um, and people actually start businesses online for that reason. You don't have to have an office. You know, you've, it's online is really just the descendant of what we used to call mail order for most businesses. You know, the business that used to be started, um, you know, Ma and Pa's just said, okay, we want to supplement Pa's income from the postal service, so we're going to put an ad in the back of Boys Life magazine and see if we can sell this glow-in-the-dark skeleton kit or something like that. And then they still just, you know, people would send checks to their address and then they'd send out the skeleton kit or whatever they had to sell. And it's still that way. It's just a lot easier to find people. It's, it's a lot easier for people to find you if you do it right or if you choose your market right. Um, the big disadvantage online is that you can't see what your customers are doing. If you have a store and people come into the store, or if you have a booth at a convention and people are coming into the booth or coming up to your table, then while they're shopping, you can see what they're doing. You can overhear them talking to each other. You know, do you think Joe would like this? No, you know, Joe really doesn't like green stuff. Nobody wears green stuff anymore. You, you pick up thousands of things like that without realizing it. When you are making money on or trying to make money online and nobody's buying all you know is that nobody's buying you know if you've got some analytics maybe you know that people are coming into your store and not buying or maybe you don't know that you know when we started we didn't even have analytics it was just there's a site here and people are buying or they aren't it's it's really spooky it's like being shut in an office with the windows painted shut and just wondering why the phone doesn't ring when it's not ringing that is probably it, that can be a really scary thing if if things suddenly stop online or slow down, you don't know why. And if they suddenly pick up, yeah, you celebrate, but you still don't know what you did right sometimes. It's, whereas if it's if you've got dozens of customers suddenly coming into the store one day, you can hear that, oh, they're all there because there's a convention down the street, and they all somebody mentioned, oh, okay, now you know what's going on. Now you know that you should find out when that convention's going to be in town and maybe advertise there. Online, it's just the orders appear, they disappear, you don't know what's going on. It's It can be scary. Yeah, and I could see how it's hard to know what to do more of and what to do less of when you don't have any way to really gauge what's going on. Yeah, 
yeah, and you can see an uptick in sales of something and you don't really know why. And should you order more or was that just a short burst? And I think today it, it might be easier. There's There wasn't anything called social media at the time. And as much as there's a lot of buzz about how social media is the big thing to sell and make connections with your customers, I have never really gotten into it. But to me, social media is a listening tool. If I'm going to use it, it what are people saying? What what does the market really want? It's the way to, it can be. It can be if you're lucky or you know how to use it right. The way to tap into what people want, and then then know what to put on your site. You can still draw traffic to your site and so forth. But I I kind of look at it primarily as a listening tool. Hmm. What did you do right as you were growing science teacher, and what did you do wrong? Um, I'll talk about what we did right, not because what I because I want to brag, but if I talk about what we did wrong, I'll. This Are we going to be here a, a long time? If we're we going to be about here a long time if I talk about what we did wrong, but oh, I can talk well, about a few things that we did right. And um, one thing, probably, you know, the, the one thing, if if I thought I was dying of cancer, was going to be hit by a truck when I left here, and wanted to tell people one thing that they need to do. Um, I think everybody gets the value of repeat business and referrals. Um, I had no real business experience when we started this business. Um, my only, the only thing you'd really call selling experience for me was when I was in high school for French Club. I sold those world's finest chocolate bars, you know, and I just walked around all the time with a box. And actually, it was so we. This was in a small town in Kansas, and we were going to the big city. I was, I was selling French Club chocolate bars, so I could. So I could take a field trip to eat in a French restaurant in the major thriving metropolis of Tulsa, Oklahoma, believe it or not. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, that's one of two times I've been to Tulsa, I believe. But what I learned from this selling experience, actually, I couldn't sell anybody anything. You know, I couldn't have sold my way out of a paper bag then. But I just always carried the chocolate bars with me all day long. And one day a guy named Mitch sitting behind me in geometry class bought a chocolate bar for me. You know, it was just random. People would buy a chocolate bar. Well, Mitch bought a chocolate bar. The next day, Mitch bought another chocolate bar. The next day, Mitch bought another. He bought a chocolate bar every day for about three weeks. And I had a couple other customers like that. And we had, I don't know, 50 or 100 kids running around selling chocolate bars for French Club. And I was the third highest salesman. First highest was my friend Don, who had two older sisters who loved chocolate. I didn't really try to sell anything. I just had somehow, by happenstance, because I always had the chocolate bars, I became the reliable supplier for this stable of repeat customers. So the first thing I learned about business was the value of a repeat customer. And the thing about going to conventions is that you t- you pack up packing up t-shirts taking t-shirts to a convention doing any kind of convention sales but maybe especially t-shirt sales is just you know if you really thought about what was involved before you did it you'd never do it because you have to pack up all the t-shirts if you've got an online operation also you have to take the t-shirts online pack them up get them in the van or whatever you're driving there drive half a day a day two days get there Then you get to go into the convention hall, unpack all the shirts, set up everything, sell the stuff, 
then you got to count what's left, then put it back in the boxes, then drive it back, put it back on the inventory shelves for the online store, and put it back, you know, data enter it back into the online inventory. All of this while trying to keep up with whatever orders are coming in, and you know, it's not like everything is smooth to begin with. You're always leaving a little late if you screwed something up, and so it's, it's a really tiring process. When you've gone to that much trouble to get to where the customers are, my philosophy was we want to keep them. But I was actually kind of, I kind of forgot that the first time out, and we had this like um, fortunate disaster. Because, you know, I said earlier we got shirts to take to the convention. Well, yeah, we did. A, we ordered some online from a guy I found searching around just to see what happened, if, you know, try to sell his stuff. And then B, I designed a shirt that I thought would be pretty, would sell well or might have a chance of selling well. And when we finally got it in print, it didn't sell that well. But what happened was because I was using the wrong artwork, artwork program on the computer I had access to, and then I gave them the artwork, they, that they're having to clean up my artwork took so long that they missed the deadline to get the shirts for us in time for the convention. So I had this design that I thought was pretty cool that we couldn't sell. And so we're there at the convention. I'm thinking, geez, you know, some of these people might like that thing. And finally, I, I did have a printout of the design. So I put it, took it out, wrote coming soon on the printout, taped it to the table and grabbed a notebook, slapped it open there and said, name, email, address. This was 1998. It wasn't that hard to get people to give you your email address. And, you know, anybody that was interested in the shirt gave us their email address. So we had a list of about 18 people to uh, to notify when the shirt finally came in because I wanted to sell more. And afterwards I realized, you know, if we keep building this list of names of people that are interested, then we can notify them whenever we have something to sell you know it was just like this lucky disaster that happened and and um, from there on when we went to a convention we were actually if anything more aggressive about getting people on the mailing list than about selling stuff anybody that bought from us you know automatically do you want to be on our email list do you want to be on our catalog list here would you fill this out while i take care of your credit card charge and because of that we actually did better we were actually able to make a decent income. You know, that actually was the difference between scraping by and making a pretty good living on the t-shirt business. So let's take a quick break. Okay, sounds good. Okay, and we're back. I went to Comic-Con two years in a row. Dozens of people who've trucked all the way across the country to sell comics books and T-shirts and whatever else. And, and they're just making sales on the spot, and none of them are taking names. At most, they've got a sign that says, like us on Facebook. And so it, to me, it's the most important thing a business owner can do, certainly if you're online, because people aren't... If you have a brick-and-mortar store, at least people drive by or walk by every once in a while online they have to either look for you or you know, they, they don't find, they don't accidentally bump into your store online 
How did you market yourself online so that people would go out and find you? Well, initially we didn't do a very good job of that. There wasn't a lot of traffic, you know. I think in that went on, that went online in Christmas in nineteen nine or November of nineteen ninety nine, and we uh, we got I don't know ten orders for Christmas, and it was actually caused for much excitement. You know, initially it was just a market to people that have bought from us, and it was pretty low-key, and there wasn't a lot of money coming in. Then one day I realized, more or less over time, I guess not so much one day, I realized the website wasn't quite what we needed, and I I just made it so that everything downloaded right away, and you could get from any page to any other page in two clicks. It was it was a really ugly website, but we got compliments on it for years because it was so easy to use. And I read up what was known on SEO at the time, which didn't take very long. It was basically meta tag your stuff and put in some meta tags, and people found us. And then I stumbled across something called goto.com, which was the per- first pay-per-click advertising auction. And that was a that was a thing where you could advertise. You could put up an ad, and it was like an auction. You know, if I'm bidding on math T-shirt and somebody else is bidding on math T-shirt, then whoever's paying more money gets comes up first when somebody searches on math T-shirt, and that led to an immediate uptick. And in those days, it was pretty cheap. And we did a lot of this at the right time. In those days, you could buy clicks for a nickel or less. These days it's pretty cutthroat, and uh, you know, even if even selling math T-shirts, you know, you can figure out pretty quickly that well, you know, even if one in every hundred people that clicks buys a shirt, we're okay, we're making money. When it's fifty cents a click, it doesn't work that way, and that's we got lucky because there was also virtually no such thing as tracking, knowing how knowing what people clicked on that led them to make a sale, knowing how many sales you got from people clicking on your ad versus how many from from search engine optimization or from Facebook. And we just got lucky. We were there at the right time. So, so. have you been able to take that, the knowledge that you learned, and as the technology has grown over time, and spun that into kind of the next generation of that kind of marketing? Um, not online. I mean, I know how to, or not on my uh, t-shirt site. I know how to do it, but I just, essentially the t-shirt business kind of hit a bad time when my family fell apart at the same time that the economy crashed in 2008. And after all, after all the dust was settled and the divorce, the ink on the divorce papers was dry, it was... It was my business, and I realized that without a family, I didn't care about the business. So I haven't uh, haven't done that so much. Looking at now, as you know, is um, Google AdWords, specializing in p- providing Google AdWords services for people. And that actually grew out of yet another disaster because, like I say, we got on online advertising early when it was cheap. Che- clicks on Google were a nickel in those days. And, you know, at a nickel, I'll buy all the clicks I can on math T-shirt or whatever, the, almost any term, if you've got anything to sell, is going to turn out well at, at nickel clicks. But five years later, suddenly we were paying about 1500 bucks a month in Google clicks. And, you know, when you, that's about 18000 a year, and I think it was actually a little more because we were paying more at Christmas and a couple other times a year and when there's a lot more activity and a lot more clicks. And... 
my wife was kind of getting on my case to do something about this. Do we really have to be spending that much money? And part of the reason I'm divorced is I wasn't always the most responsive husband, but you know, somewhere between the fifth and fiftieth time she asked me, I agreed to do something about it. So I went and bought every book I could on Google AdWords. And you know, if if you're spending fifteen hundred a month, the idea of cutting your bill a little justifies the purchase of almost any book you can get your hands on. And read through them all, and then went online and you know, find and just uh, in the course of a really long day, rearranged the whole Google account and how we were advertising and what we were advertising on and how much we were bidding. And when it was done, we were paying. You know, after that, we were paying about five hundred a month with not a whole lot of decrease in sales. That's impressive. That's. Well, that's what I do, but it's also, um, you know, there's the famous quote, people always attribute it to P.T. Barnum, where he says, half the money I spend is advertise- uh, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is I don't know which half. And that actually apparently comes from a guy named John Wanamaker, who owned some really big department stores in the late, late 19th century. Part of it was just looking and seeing, well, you can look and see what you've been paying for clicks on. And I've, um, to give you an example, things that, things that run wild. Well, I, I've told you I was bidding on math t-shirt, and there are different ways to set that up, and I hadn't set it up very carefully. So essentially I was bidding anytime somebody included math t-shirt as part of their search. Turned out, I had no idea, there was a rock band out there, a little indie band called Mute Math. And they had some T-shirts. And so all of their fans were going online, and some of them were seeing my ad when they searched for Mute Math T-shirt and not really thinking. Just our ad came up first because I was bidding the most. Bang, they clicked on it. Garbage clicks. That's really interesting and kind of funny. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Kind of funny if it's not happening to you. Yeah, kind of funny if it's not your wallet. Yeah. So... What's next for you, or what's now for you? Okay, what's now? Well, as you know, we're doing a project using Google AdWords for one aspect of your legal, your law firm. Well, I know that, but the podcast world doesn't okay. know that. <laughs> okay, well, I'm currently working with a local attorney um, to advertise her probate services on using Google AdWords. And after kicking it around for a while, I decided I wanted to focus on providing Google AdWords services for attorneys. I like the Google AdWords thing, and I was looking for I was looking for something portable, and I can manage that. I can be on the beach in San Diego and you go into a coffee shop and work on that for a while and then come back out and lie on the beach. And some, some services don't quite work that way. And lawyers, because it's better to have a target market, and lawyers are... Lawyers are local, meaning what works for, meaning I can scale it. What works for a lawyer in Minneapolis, I can scale, take across the river to St. Paul, find another lawyer, find another lawyer up in Dakota County, or down in Dakota County, I guess, and uh, and take it down to Kansas City or Salt Lake or wherever, and basically scale the same thing over and over. Well, and I suppose once you, once you have a proven track record in, say, probate, then it doesn't take that much to say, okay, um, DUI. Maybe that's a that right. may be a, a more competitive market, but nonetheless, kind of similar. Yeah. When you need an attorney in that sort of area. You need an attorney. Yeah, and that's part of what I look for is something where somebody actually needs an attorney uh, or needs the service at least initially. I suppose um, 
marketing to lawyers has the benefit too that they're willing to pay more than the cost of a t-shirt yeah yeah with the t-shirts we needed about 5,000 orders a year to make a good living with uh, with attorneys I figure I need 10 to 20 so yeah I mean that's part of it I'm I believe in customer service I just don't want to have to provide it myself when people are calling and saying where's my shirt and, oh it got delayed in the mail and so forth and enough and for so, 5,000 of them <laughs> Not for 5,000 of them, no. <laughs> Digby, um, how can people reach you if they want to reach um, out? Right now, I'm pretty hard to get hold of because I'm just kind of burrowed in during doing some projects. But by the time this goes, this podcast goes to press, I will probably have digbywillardmarketing.com set up and running. And I do irregularly, and I'm getting more regular about it, publish a small print newsletter for lawyers for marketing purposes and the secret about one of the secrets about marketing is that uh, there are a few quirks that you need to know marketing for lawyers but basically marketing for lawyers is like marketing for almost anybody else in fact one of the lawyers who uh, one of my subscribers saw me just somebody I knew in a coffee shop and asked if he'd be interested after we started talking a while and he said yeah sure and I sent him my marketing newsletter and he actually was just starting a business selling some rugby training equipment and the next time I saw him he's he told me how after reading my newsletter on marketing legal services he now knew how to market his rugby equipment so it's not just it's just for lawyers but it's not really just for lawyers I just haven't versioned it out for an everybody else version at this point so can people reach you at Digby Willard Marketing and subscribe to your newsletter regardless of what business they're in yes and the, the it is a print newsletter. For now, it is free. Um, so I will need your physical address, and we can talk about why I do it as a physical newsletter another time, if you'd like. So we'll put the link up on our uh, show notes, but uh, just in case somebody doesn't go to our show notes, can you spell out? Okay. <laughs> yeah. My, I'm going to assume everybody knows how to spell marketing. My first name is Digby. That's D as in dog, I, G as in girl, B as in boy, Y. And my last name is Willard, W-I-L-L-A-R-D. That's not Willard. People tend to want to make it W-I-L-L-I-A-R-D, and there's only one I in there, so it's digbywillardmarketing.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Digby, for being my first guest, and I have to say, you are awesome. Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be a prize guinea pig. next week on the Small Business Buzz when I talk about creating ironclad independent contractor agreements and we visit with Julie Gann, co-owner of Twin Cities Food Tours, about buying a small business versus starting from scratch and her experience stepping in as owner of an already established business. You can find links and other useful information on our show notes at thesmallbusinessbuzz.com and be sure to follow us on iTunes. Of course, a lawyer would have a disclaimer, and so here's mine. Any information provided on the show is for informational purposes only and is not intended as legal advice. 
The show theme music is Pioneers by Jason Shaw, released under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. And the interlude music piece is an excerpt from Travel Light by Jason Shaw, also released under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week.